Welcome back to the program from the discovery of x-rays at the turn of the century to the tragedy of Fukushima. We've had 120 years of the nuclear age. It's something that was once so modern, so cutting edge, filled with so much promise, is now viewed as a scourge upon mankind. While nuclear medicine makes life-saving procedures possible, nuclear proliferation still drives international concern. While the physics of the atom tries to give us a better understanding of our past, the fear is still pervasive that the same physics could be the end of that history. The contradictions and emotions of splitting the atom still haunt us. And today we're going to talk about that history with my guest, Craig Nelson. Craig Nelson is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Rocket Men, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program today to talk about the age of radiance, the epic rise and dramatic fall of the atomic era. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. It is so difficult to talk about the nuclear age because it conjures up so much emotion, so many different reactions in people that to try and talk about it objectively is so difficult. I know. I think the first reaction to when I tell people what uh, my new book is about is to put their fingers in their ears and go, no, 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 <laughs> they don't even want to talk about it. And it, and it really is a shame because the, the history of the atomic age, um, uh, starting with x-rays and ending with Fukushima, is an incredible story of, of human drama and of unforeseen consequences. And it's really, if, if, any, if history provides us with any good sources of education, this sure is one of them. And you've made the point that, you know, if we look at Fukushima, for example, the tsunami killed thousands of people. Fukushima, as horrible as it was, was really not responsible for any specific deaths, and yet that's what we focus on. Yes, that was really what uh, amazed me in our in, in our most recent history with nuclear, is that if you would look at the American press accounts, you would think the only thing that happened in Japan was this nuclear accident, when in fact, we now know that 18,000 people died in the tsunami, and nobody died uh, because of the nuclear accident, as far as we know so far. But uh, 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 So that shows you how far our fears have escalated beyond the actual facts of the matter. Does that then make it impossible to really have serious conversations about the positive values of nuclear energy? Well, I think people avoid thinking about the positive values because uh, uh, between China syndrome and Chernobyl and uh, Silkwood and uh, and now Fukushima, uh, we just hear one horror story after the next. And it really is a shame because even though it's much more expensive and even though when these accidents happen, they they are terrible, and they do have a terrible effect on their neighbors. Uh, compared to petrochemicals, nuclear is almost a dream come true for energy. So it, it, it is a shame. It does make you wonder, and I was thinking about this, that, that a new generation that doesn't have the experience of being as immersed in the history of, of the atomic bomb and the Cold War and the fears that were associated with it, that a younger generation may have a different reaction to nuclear, maybe not. Well, I hope you're right, because uh, there certainly is a lot in the technology that could be uh, uh, a certainly dramatic 
improvement over our reliance on especially coal, which kills 16,000 Americans a year from air pollution alone. So uh, it would certainly be hoped that there's a lessening of this fear. And what I really hope, though, is that someone has a technological breakthrough, either in fusion research, we're hearing about that now because Ider in France is about to open, or in cold breeder reactors, or in these small-scale reactors that Bill Gates is investing in. And I'm hoping there's a technological breakthrough so that we no longer have these wildly expensive, uh, sl- uh, somewhat dangerous and very frightening uh, power plants that people have grown to uh, fear and loathe. You go into the history of, of nuclear energy beginning with the, the X-ray about 120 years ago. Talk a little bit about what you discovered immersing yourself in that history and, and where it brings you to today in understanding the totality of nuclear energy. Well, every single moment in the history of this science is really filled with magic. And and that's what I really hope to bring back to this era of enchantment when all of this was brand new and they didn't realize the dangers. So it's almost like um, watching a, a, a... a scary movie where all of us know what's coming, but the people then did not know. So you're seeing people like uh, Röntgen, who discovered the X-ray, and uh, Marie and Pierre Curie, who uh, essentially discovered what radioactivity is, and Enrico Fermi, who creates the first atomic reactor in an abandoned football stadium in the middle of Chicago. Uh, You see them all completely under the sway of the magic of this brand new thing that they've discovered, and they know nothing about other than that it's it's remarkable because you're taking matter you're taking these rocks and these metals and out of them is coming this energy and it and it's such a life force that of course we call the um uh age uh, era of of radioactivity a half-life and so marie curie for example she would come into her lab in the morning before the sun had come out and she would leave her radium out on the walls and it looked like aquatic fireflies so she could see it all lit up on the walls as she came in. And then people noticed that after she put the radium away, the walls were still glowing. So you, you really have this double feeling as you read the history because you know what's going to happen in the days to come. At one point, this was all seen as so modern, so cutting edge, so contemporary. It doesn't feel that way anymore. No. Every single uh, moment in this science creates a tremendous public sensation. So, for example, uh, after x-rays came out, for a while, they, you would x-ray your feet at a shoe store to determine the shoe size, and, and Edison tried to make an x-ray light bulb, and uh, people going to World's Fairs would have their purses and bags x-rayed. It was just all over the place, uh, and, and, and it, it, it was even sold as part of cosmetics and bandages and health treatments and, and all of these other things, and the exact thing happened all over again with Marie Curie and radium. There were radium spas and radium beer and, and radium water that you were supposed to drink every day. And again, the same thing happened right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There was a huge uh, 
uh, fair in the middle of Central Park in New York called Man and the Atom that was all, all going to be about the fantastic things that atoms were going to do for us. And you could buy um, uh, atomic bomb salt and pepper shakers and atomic bomb martinis. And it was considered another uh, great step forward. So uh, now that we know uh, everything that happens at the end, you see this history remarkably differently. And all of that would seem in such bad taste today in so many ways. Well, actually, I think at this moment, it's seen as being comical. I mean, one of my favorite finds, in, in because of, of, of it's almost seen as being uh, funny on a sitcom level, one of my favorite finds was this, um, there's this old magazine called Picture Parade that was sold to schools for, it was like a comic book that uh, children, were, young children were supposed to use as part of their education. And in this one, in this particular Picture Parade, a little boy, is out hiking with his dog and the dog runs off into the Nevada test site and comes back covered with radioactive dust so the, uh, the Atomic Energy Commission keeps the dog for a, a week to wash it off uh, and then the uh, cover of the magazine is a picture of the boy and his dog reunited and, and one of the atomic tests is going off in the background so there's a mushroom cloud going off while this boy and dog are hugging in the desert and this originally was supposed to be, you know, uh, a, a warm-hearted tale for children to learn about the wonders of atomic power. And then during the 60s, it was, it was an illustration that it, looked, it made it look like the boy and the dog were the lone survivors of nuclear apocalypse, and now you can buy it on a mouse pad. It's like a comical nostalgia item. There are still cities in this country, Berkeley first and foremost, that when you drive into them, there are signs that say, this is a nuclear-free zone. Right, exactly. And of course, since the first cyclotrons were invented at Berkeley and created there, which is the source of plutonium, there's another ironic moment in history for you. Talk a little bit about where nuclear energy is today. And, and, and part of what's happened as a result of what we're talking about is that it seems that so much of the research, so much of the opportunity because of this fear has really slowed down. It's been underfunded and, and really underattended to. Well, the big dramatic upswing in nuclear is coming in uh, Asia, where both China and Vietnam plan to build a whole slew of reactors over the next two decades. And um, on the one hand, if China is able to make the investment it's making in pebble bed reactors, which is a very safe form of reactor if it works out, then that will be fantastic. But on the other hand, you know, if anyone knows how to create an environmental catastrophe, it's the government of China. So uh, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen there. It could be fantastically great or it could be another horror show. What happened to France's nuclear program, which was very active for a long time? It still is very active. France exports electricity because it produces so much. And they have a brilliant educational campaign so that all of the troubles we've had in the United States with trying to store our excess nuclear waste from reactors, which, by the way, are stored in uh, containers that are sort of like swimming pools, more or less out in the open. I mean, they're, they're indoors, but they're not inside containment like the reactors are. Um, 
Uh, anyway, uh, and that was actually one of the great fears at Fukushima was that those would get ignite and melt down out in the open, and that could, of course, happen in various sites across the United States. But anyway, back to France. Our problem in trying to get rid of our own waste, uh, France fixed by telling the people where it was building its waste site how um, they were going to have scientists on the site all the time and set up a research department and set up an entire business there uh, to handle this waste and use it and recycle it so people didn't feel like it was just being dumped in their backyard and anything might happen to them. And so the, the people who live next to their, that site are, are just content with it being there and they consider it part of the, being part of the country. Of course, while the Cold War fears have long since subsided, now we, we live in this fear of nuclear terrorism, which in many ways continues to give nuclear energy a bad name. Well, that's actually quite unlikely because um, uh, you have to be very sophisticated to run around with nuclear weapons and not be... Uh, uh, get nuclear sickness yourself, yourself number one. Uh, number two, the source of uh, the kind of materials that can be used to make atomic weapons is very rare. That was, in fact, when uh, during the uh, uh, World War II and during the Cold War, we talked about atomic secrets that only the United States has, and everyone assumed it meant the big brains at Los Alamos, these world-class physicists who had gathered at Los Alamos. But what it really meant was this technological miracle that was going on in Tennessee and the state of Washington, where they were producing plutonium and a uranium isotope that's used in bombs uh, uh, in order to create fuel for atomic weapons. Well, that material is very rare, and you can identify where it comes from and who's making it. So anyone who tried to use a bomb as a, as a, a dirty bomb as a weapon, we would know where it came from, and I don't think there's any state government that wants to be involved in that. Talk about our fear of today of nuclear proliferation, all the focus on Iran, and, and, and really how that also works against the positive uses of nuclear energy. Well, I conclude in my book that uh, in the future, nuclear arms are going to be as dated as the blunderbuss or the trebuchet or the catapult, that you're going to look at them and say, uh, oh, those poor people wasting their money on that dumb thing, because that's, in fact, what has happened where, uh, you know, it's... Uh, since 1945, no one has ever used a nuclear weapon offensively or defensively in any manner. And we spent trillions of dollars on all of these things for no purpose. And you can see the pointlessness of it right at the start, because before we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we were running a fire raid campaign, dropping what was then uh, that, that era's version of napalm and incinerating all of Japan, and we had already destroyed entirely 60 of their cities uh, when along comes the atomic bomb. And, and although the bomb is, of course, extremely powerful, uh, using the ex destruction of those air raids, I was able to calculate that the effect of one atomic bomb over Hiroshima could have been done with 200 planes dropping these airstrikes. So that's the only difference. It's only a much bigger bomb. And this entire sort of romance and mystery and uh, 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 myth that has grown up around atomic weapons is something we've completely created in our heads. 
Of course, the idea was that if one person had it and somebody else had it, there was this notion of mutually assured destruction, which is what kept the world in check, arguably, for a long time. Yeah, this is one of the great sort of uh, mental puzzles to, to figure out. Is the fact that all of the superpowers, China and Russia and the United States and France and England and various other countries, all had nuclear weapons, did that keep the Cold War cold? And a lot of people firmly believe that it does. In fact, there's, a, there's an idea that's been going on that for many years that because Alfred Nobel's great dream was to create a weapon of such power that it would make war impossible, but since his money funds the Nobel Peace Prize, that prize should go to the people who created the weapon that was so horrible it kept wars from happening. And so they, they actually feel that the Nobel Peace Prize should go to the people who invented atomic weapons. And we shouldn't forget, as you focus on in the age of radiance, some of the interesting people, some of the fascinating characters that have been part of this history. Well, one of my favorite stories, and, and actually one of my favorite things to learn is, you know, we've all grown up with uh, Marie Curie as having the great love of her life, Pierre, and other than that being this sort of cold-hearted, brainiac kind of woman. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. After Pierre died, Marie had an intensely passionate affair with a student of Pierre's named Paul, who was himself a very famous, well-known physicist. And unfortunately, even though they were perfect for each other, uh, Paul had a wife who was very unhappy with her husband cheating on her with the most famous woman in France. And that wife had a brother who ran a tabloid newspaper. So the wife started an incredible campaign attacking Marie, and the scandal grew so enormous that when she was getting ready to go back to Sweden to get her second Nobel Prize, the committee said, well, maybe you should wait till next year and come and get this prize because they didn't want her, uh, any more publicity over the scandal. But the fantastic side effect of all this is that the um, Paul, the boyfriend, recommended Marie hire a lab assistant named Fred, and a year after Fred came to work for her, he told Marie, I want to marry your daughter, Irene. And Marie was so taken aback by this that she made Fred sign one of the first prenups in history where uh, if anything happened in the marriage, uh, the Curies would keep all the radium. But what had happened instead was Marie was totally wrong. Fred and Irene had a fantastic marriage, and they discovered artificial radiation which is a foundation of nuclear medicine and as important to modern medicine as the microscope. And because of that discovery, um, Irene was the second woman to win a Nobel, her mother Marie being the first. Who were the first people to realize within the whole nuclear universe, the people that have been involved in it since pre-Los Alamos, who were the first people to realize what the real dangers were and how the public was going to react to this. Well, one of the fantastic stories that comes up in this book is of a group that were known as the Hungarian Quartet. And these were three, uh, four men, uh, excuse me, four men from uh, Budapest who all grew up just a couple of miles from each other. Uh, they ended up in Germany for their advanced educations after fleeing uh, Budapest because of anti-Semitism, and then they all ended up in America because of Hitler. And on the one hand, they were terrified of, of Hitler getting the bomb, and on the other, they knew that anyone having the bomb was a bad idea. 
So they worked for it, but they had misgivings about it almost the whole way there. And, and the main figure in this story is uh, a guy named, George, uh, named Zillard, Leo Zillard. And Zillard, uh, uh, after the discovery of fission happened, Zillard was walking down the street in London, and he stopped at a street corner, and he started in his head realizing, uh, sort of like uh, if you uh, strike a... Uh, uh, pool table filled with balls and they all crash into each other what would happen if you started neutrons crashing into each other and he really sort of invented in his head the chain reaction and at first he thought what an incredibly marvelous thing this is and the second he thought this is the worst thing that could ever happen in history so one of the key inventors of this and he's he 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 with fermi Zillard is the one who has the patent on the nuclear reactor. Uh, he was aware of the dangers from the very beginning. Talk a little bit about Los Alamos and the realization there of, of what was about to happen. Well, Los Alamos is a, such a fantastic story because for almost everyone who was there, it was the best memory of their entire life. Uh, it really was to the people working there sort of an Eden and, and sort of like the ultimate uh, model of a scientific community because literally every name in science except Heisenberg who was working for the Nazis, every big name in science showed up at Los Alamos. But at the same time, in order to uh, create those bombs, they needed to do unbelievably frightening experiments. Uh, the first being the creation of the atomic reactor, which was done in the middle of the city of Chicago, that I think is probably one of the most frightening scientific experiments in history. And another being the uh, bomb for Hiroshima was a very simple gun design, where a plug of, a, a plug of uranium would be shot into a bowl of uranium, and the two would combine to create nuclear fission. But... They, it was very difficult making this isotope that you had to use for your bomb. So they needed to figure out exactly how much was needed for each side of it and make only that much to make the bomb work. So to do this, one of the guys who had actually co-discovered fission, a guy named Otto Robert Frisch, set up a guillotine in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And on this guillotine, he would have a set of washers made from the isotope, and a set of plugs made from the isotope. And he would drop the plugs through the washers, and there would be a moment where everything would go super critical for a fraction of a second. And Dick Feynman, the physicist, called it tickling the dragon's tail because they were trying to come as close as possible to creating an atomic explosion without actually blowing themselves up. From your research on this and understanding what you do now about the history of, of nuclear energy and nuclear power splitting the atom, talk a little bit about what you came away with that was perhaps different than where you started. Well, I guess the very first irony that I couldn't believe in is the fact that um, uh, in 1945, just a couple of months after the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, uh, Nagasaki was struck by a horrible typhoon, and it was terribly damaging and did a lot of devastation, but it also washed away all of the radiation. So, and that did not happen in the state of Nevada, where the United States conducted all these uh, Cold War tests. So today, uh, the state of Nevada is in far worse shape from nuclear effects than Hiroshima is. 
Uh, and the second thing that amazed me was that um, uh, during all those tests, there's airborne radioactive iodine has been spread over the whole continent of the United States. And today, uh, uh, every year now, around 11,000 Americans will die from cancers caused by that airborne radiation from the Cold War era from 50 years ago. So all that time that we spent worrying about the Russians dropping bombs on us and turning our cities into nuclear <laughs> deserts, uh, the Russians were poisoning their own people from their tests out of Kazakhstan, and the government here was poisoning us from tests out of Nevada. What's really remarkable is how little we knew, even though we thought we knew so much. Yeah, the, the other amazing thing that flabbergasted me was the uh, research done on the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, where they went in and have been studying these people ever since you know, 1946. And you would think that there would be lots of genetic deformities, and you would think that there would be huge rates of cancer. But they've discovered in all this time since that there are no genetic deformities, and there's only a 1% increase in cancer. So when you imagine all of the fears we've all had about the very word radioactivity and nuclear and everything else compared with that issue, it's just an amazing thing to me. Craig Nelson, his book is The Age of Radiance, The Epic Rise and Dramatic Fall of the Atomic Era. Craig, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 